I'm Alex Schwartz. I'm Nomi Fry. I'm Vincent Cunningham, and this is Critics at Large, a New Yorker podcast for the culturally curious. Each week, we're going to talk about a big idea that's showing up across the cultural landscape, and we'll trace it through all the mediums we love. Books, movies, television, music, art. And I always want to talk about celebrity gossip, too. Of course. We hope you'll join us for new episodes each Thursday. Follow Critics at Large today, wherever you get podcasts. This episode of Livewire is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you can call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance, too, with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Hey everyone, it's Luke. Uh, Before we get going with this week's episode of Livewire, I just wanted to let you know that we are in our spring member drive. And uh, I wanted to gently impress upon you just how important it is for us that you support Livewire if this is something that you uh, enjoy week in and week out. It takes a lot to put together an episode of our show. Of course, we recorded on stage in front of a live crowd, so we have got to rent the place where we do the show. We hire contractors uh, to help us with the production each week. We got to wrangle the live crowd. We got to wrangle the guests. Uh, the guests are often flown in from uh, all over the country. Folks like Salman Rushdie, Phoebe Robinson, Baratunde Thurston, just to name a few. Um, and all of that, of course, costs money. But our hope is that we are able to create week in and week out something that really sounds different on public radio. Uh, It sounds, I don't know, maybe a little corny, but uh, within our kind of staff meetings, I always try to talk about Livewire as being the realest show in public radio. I don't know if that's grammatically correct or not, but I want to create a show that really creates actual genuine conversations and genuine moments of surprise and delight. Um, But that stuff doesn't come together uh, by accident. It takes a lot of work for a lot of people. And also, to be honest with you, it takes a lot of money. So we're hoping that you hear that week in and week out on our show. Um, But the thing is, we are an independently produced nonprofit organization. Uh, So what does that mean for us? That means that the only way that we can actually do this is with your support. So if you like Livewire and if you feel like it adds value to your life... um, We would be so appreciative if you could take a moment and sign up as a sustaining member today by donating $10 a month to the show. It's just 10 bucks a month, but all of those 10 bucks add up and it makes it possible for us to do this program. Uh, You can click on the link in this podcast for more information, or you can go over to livewireradio.org for more information about our spring member drive. Again, you can click on this podcast for more information, or head over to livewireradio.org. We can only do this with your help, and so thank you so much for keeping Livewire going. Welcome to Livewire, everybody. I'm Luke Burbank. How are you doing? Sorry, I'm battling some seasonal allergies this week. 
So it's got me a little bit outside of my comfort zone as I, I record this part of the show. Uh, on the subject of comfort zones, that's kind of what we're talking about this week because all of our guests, who, by the way, are amazing, talking about Egioma Aluo, Paul F. Tompkins, Open Mike Eagle, all of our guests, their work sort of gently encourages us to move outside of our comfort zones. And I was thinking about this on the day that we recorded this episode of the show, and I realized somewhat to my chagrin that uh, my comfort zone is tragically small. And so I was talking about this on stage at the Alberta Rose Theater in Portland uh, with our announcer, Elena Passarello. Take a listen to this. I was thinking about this on a, on a jog, and I realized it because this is what was happening. For me to be in my comfort zone when I'm exercising, I have to be hearing the exact right song at the end of the jog to be, like, triumphant. <laughs> By the way, I jog like three and a half miles at like 14 minute miles, much slower than Oprah ran an entire marathon in. But in my mind, it's like if I'm not hearing Let the Beat Build by Lil Wayne as I'm finishing, it's like, why even do it? Is that that's your that's your home stretch run of that's choice? That's currently okay. my finishing the run jam today because I have those AirPods. Oh, yeah. They were not connecting to the music. And so I had no music. I stopped. I tried to fix it when I realized there was no fixing it. I just walked the, la- the last part of the run. <laughs> like, why even do it? Go, little Wayne, forget it. Why don't you just sing it to yourself? It wouldn't be this. I'd be out of my comfort zone, uh, Passarello. Right, 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 right. Think right, about right, it. Right. Come on. What about you? What, what, what makes you feel like you're outside of your comfort zone? I think we're, we're sort of paisan on this, man. I have a, just a itsy-bitsy, teeny-weeny, you know, Brazilian bikini of a comfort zone. <laughs> uh, I promise you that's the first time those words have been uttered in that order on public radio. That's probably a good thing for everyone but us. <laughs> um, but I think mine has gotten smaller. I mean, I don't know, when, when you were in your 20s, I don't know if this was your experience, but my experience was, you know, I could sleep on like an old office chair in an alley or like go on a road trip in the backseat. God, what happened during your 20s? Man, it was great. It was great. And I was, I think I was a really intolerable person in my 20s, but I was very easygoing when it came to comfort. But now like there's, I think one degree, like one temperature that my coffee has to be, (laughs) it's just, it's just a wash. So I have to pace up and down from my office to the microwave. I can't like put the cup of coffee down and then go check something. I can't uh, drink it slowly and stare out the window like the Celestial Seasonings commercials or whatever. My morning is now a constant uh, volley to keep my coffee at this temperature. Isn't that terrible? Well, I have good news for you, Elena. What? Uh, the folks at Forbes uh, wrote out a list of ways to expand your comfort zone or get out of your comfort zone. Okay, I need these. And I printed these out. I just wanted to run some of these by you. Okay. Um, Forbes is where we turn for all of our life advice. I think we could all agree. That's true. Um, how about this one? Go to the library and check out some books based on other readers' recommendations. Uh, dive into a novel. Many people give up reading at a certain age. They forget how reading expands their worldview and builds their mojo fuel tank. Whoa. Yeah, okay. How, how's your mojo <laughs> fuel tank these days, Passarella? It's a lot worse after you said that <laughs> sentence. It's like Issy would see teeny bikini of, of huh. comfort zones. <laughs> Uh, another one, uh, drive home from work a different way than you normally do, or purposely get lost in your town to find your way home. I do that once a week, not on purpose. 
Yeah, that's just Waze. That's just using the Waze app is driving through. We were right? driving here together to the theater, and we were we were on the most bizarre route through Portland, <laughs> not on any major arterials. We were terrorizing the neighborhoods of probably the good people that are here at the Alberta Rose Theater. Yeah, sorry. And we were part of a caravan of like 40 cars, and we were like, this has to be Waze, right? Yeah. Um, how about this? To get out of your comfort zone, check in with a friend you haven't seen in ages. Reach out to someone you barely know and invite them for coffee or lunch. Expand your social circle. Um, I feel like if it's a friend you haven't seen in ages, maybe that's the universe telling you something. Yeah. All of these things could also be on a list called ways to give you a panic attack. <laughs> Why isn't drinking on here more? Like, just, yeah. just drink. <laughs> yeah. All right, we've got a guest whose new book deals with this exact topic of moving outside of your comfort zone. Uh, it's called So You Want to Talk About Race, and it's a New York Times bestseller. Please welcome Ijeoma Oluo to Livewire. Ichioma, welcome back to Livewire. Happy to be here. That was a rapturous applause. Is that the greeting that you get now as a New York Times bestselling author when you enter most rooms? I mean, no, no rooms in my house. Like, my children. <laughs> You're not doing that? You walk in, they're like, ugh, mom, we're so hungry. Like, that's usually what I get. But, you know, this is lovely. This is a lovely welcome back to Portland. Well, it's a... It's a really, really good book. I really enjoyed reading it. It helped me kind of frame a lot of ideas that I'd had, conversations that I'd had previously where I didn't really have a, a, a sort of succinct and clear way to think about them or to describe them to other people. Who did you write this book for? Who did you have in mind when you were writing it? That's a tricky question because who I wrote it for and who I wrote it to are two different answers. Okay, who did you write it to? I wrote it mostly to white people. I wrote it mostly for people of color. And there's a difference. I wrote it in the hopes that it would lift some burden off of people of color or that they would be able to see their experiences in it or have a few less awful, harmful conversations or be able to navigate through some harder situations. And what that means is that there's a lot of work that white people have to do and I wanted to make sure that I included a lot of that to make that easier for them to do that. But it's, almost everything I write is for people of color. And in particular, black of... people, black women, you know, I'm always thinking, is this going to make life easier for us? Did you uh, feel, in giving the book a title, like, So You Want to Talk About Race, did you feel any kind of pressure to really write the definitive book on the subject for uh, white people in particular to kind of get a sense for how to talk about this topic and how to think outside of their, their comfort zone, as it were? No. <laughs> really? No. I mean, the truth is, is that, you know, we've been writing about these topics. There's nothing I can write about that hasn't been written about in the past. I wrote this knowing it would be a primer. I was very specific with my intention with this book, which was it wasn't going to be your deep dive into racial theory. Those books have been done by better writers than me, better academics than me. This was the book that I wanted where you're thinking, okay, what does this mean when I'm talking to my relatives and my uncle says something really racist at the dinner table? What does this mean, you know, for 
me in the office? What does this mean when I'm talking to my children's teachers? That's where I saw a gap as far as a book, and I wanted it to be something that people would carry around with them and use in their day-to-day -day lives to really combat the way in which the products of racial oppression affect us every day in ways that I think, you know, good half the population doesn't see. But you also write about they're saying something rude or mean to somebody based on the color of their skin, and then there's saying something rude or mean to somebody based on the color of their skin with the full force of the government and all of our systems behind it. It's sort of like racism and then like aggravated racism. And you draw <laughs> the distinction between the two. Um, I hadn't thought about it in that way, but I mean, that was, that was a new thought for me. Do you feel like that's putting a message out to largely white America that we haven't really had a chance to think about yet? Yeah, well, I mean, it falls into this whole debate about whether or not reverse racism is a thing, and it's, spoiler alert, it's not a thing. Explain that, though, because <laughs> this crowd is clapping along, but, like, it's very common. Anybody who's been home for the holidays, uh, or I can at least say any white person who's been home for the holidays, considers themselves even moderately woke, or whatever the word is, has had that moment where someone says, well, what about reverse racism? What do you say to that? Well, I would say, first of all, if you're only bringing it up as a rebuttal to talking about the true racial oppression that impacts the lives of people of color, chances are it's not affecting you that much. And that's kind of the difference. If it's something you can pull out of your pocket to win a debate and then put it back in your pocket for the rest of your life, chances are it's right. not that big of a deal. What people of color focus on when we talk about race, we're not talking about hurt feelings. You know, we're not talking about awkward moments. We're talking about what impedes our ability to live. And that's what racism does. That's what racial oppression does. It's because it's backed up by a system. It's because it has a system that reinforces it. When I'm walking down the street, people can think whatever they want about me. But when they act on that, and I know that they have the entire justice system, the entire political system, economic system, and education system to back that up and reinforce how I live my life, that's when we have a problem. And I think what people don't realize is it's not just, oh, it stung when someone shouted a racial slur at me. It's, you know, someone shouted a racial slur at me, and then they went and they voted. Right. You know, and, and now I can't get a job and I can't get protection from police and I can't, you know, educate my children. That's where the impact lies. We've all been called names. We've all been insulted. And when you can brush that off, that's just a matter of words. But when you can't because it has a measurable impact on your ability to live and provide for your family and your ability to be safe in this world, that's the problem of racial oppression in this country. And to act like it's all the same, you know, if I was to walk up to you and call you a white slur, you would look shocked, it would ruin your day, and then you would come back to work and your life would be the same. But if you were to say that, just the power structure that you have right now and what it would reinforce in society. If I were to insult you, yeah. In, a, in, a, in a similar fashion. Yeah, I, I wouldn't be able to insult you back without risking a lot for me. And you have a lot of power in society, right? And, and those are the sorts of things that we don't realize. You know, every day that I walk through, I remember being at work before I was writing and someone would say something racially insensitive and you would think, is this worth not getting that promotion over? Is this worth not having any allies in this office? Is it worth not having any friends? Is it worth knowing that I could be dragged into HR for creating a hostile work environment for standing up for myself? And that's the difference. 
I want to talk about that journey that you sort of went on from trying to not make too many waves in your professional life to writing this book, which I think states things really clearly and in a really necessary way. Uh, we do have to take a quick break, though. We have Ijeoma Aluo here. Her book is So You Want to Talk About Race. We'll be back with more in just a moment. Livewire is supported in part by Fully. Have you ever noticed how kind of not great you feel after you sit at work all day? Truth of the matter is your chair is probably part of the problem. Most chairs and desks, they restrict movement, which leaves your body kind of achy. Now we'd like to tell you about Fully, designer and collector of standing desks, chairs, and other workspace tools that encourage you to move so you will feel better at the end of your day. Uh, I use a Fully TikTok stool when I am recording these messages, and it has really changed my whole kind of physicality. After a long day, and I know it doesn't sound like a real job, maybe because it isn't, but after a long day of recording things at my home studio, sitting on a TikTok stool, I feel great. I don't feel like I've been ossifying for the last eight hours. I feel like I'm ready to go take on my evening. Uh, so I can't recommend fully highly enough. Get your body moving in your workspace like I've done. Go to fully.com slash livewire. That's F-U-L-L-Y dot com slash livewire. Fully, desks, chairs, and things to keep you moving. Welcome back to Livewire from PRI. I'm Luke Burbank. That's Elena Passarello right over there. We are at the Alberta Rose Theater in Portland, Oregon. We have Ijeoma Aluo here, author of So You Want to Talk About Race. Um, I didn't know this, but you, your first writing, you were writing a, basically a cooking blog. Yeah, it's a really good way to get free food. <laughs> so you started... Writing about food, and and then over time, the the topics that you would talk about on the blog really changed, and it feels like ultimately led to this book of yours. How did that evolution happen? I mean, part of it was, you know, I was working in marketing. I was working in a predominantly white industry, white male industry, and I was traveling, and I was writing about food because I really like food, and I like free food, and. <laughs> This was, you know, before people were taking selfies all the time of their food on Facebook, right? So, you know, before that, you had a blog, and you used a real camera, and it was just the same, but more annoying. And <laughs> I was doing this, but, you know, the truth was, is I think I had always thought that there would be some point in my life, there would be some level of maybe career success where I wouldn't have to deal with as much of the crap that people of color face. And, of course, that's not true. Like, I still wake up a black woman every single day. I mean, we watched Obama go through hell for eight years, being disrespected every single day in our nation's highest office, and there is no level that you can reach. And so, you know, I've never been really good at not saying things. Huh. <laughs> it's just not, um, I was always known as like, oh, should we invite Ijoma to this meeting? She says a lot of smart things, but also she says everything. <laughs> and it got to the point where there were things I just couldn't be quiet about anymore. And so I started writing about it really out of desperation. Like, I really needed to feel like my community was a community. I needed to feel like the people who said they loved me actually heard me. Because there's a collective gaslighting around race, where you're wandering around and every day you're being reminded that you're less than and that you're unsafe. And then everyone around you is acting like none of it's happening. And they're just like, what do you mean? It's a great day to be alive in America. And you're like, a cop pulled up next to me and I hyperventilated for three minutes straight 
this was my morning, you know? And so that's really why I started writing. And then once you have this area of your life where you're always telling the truth, then it becomes really hard to not get fired from your job. Like, that's <laughs> tough. Um, your mom is white, and you write in the book that you had one of your first pretty real and serious conversations about race in your, you were like in your almost mid-30s. How did that go? <laughs> it was uncomfortable. You know, people come up to me and they, I get a lot of mixed race people of color coming up to me asking how do they talk to their parents with the same fear that I had in my eyes when my mom called me to tell me she had this epiphany about race and wanted to talk to me about it. And I was like, no! I... <laughs> I love my mom. I was very fortunate. Um, many mixed-race black people in particular are raised to um, ignore their race and the realities of their race. And their parents oftentimes tell them they don't see color or, you know, they, they try to act like what they're facing doesn't exist. And my mom did not do that, luckily. My mom was very proud of our blackness. Really embarrassingly so, actually. <laughs> like... We're, we're half Nigerian, and every excuse she had to dress us up in full Nigerian garb and send us off to school, she would. And there's like this picture of us at, during the Olympics, um, I think it was 1988. Yeah. In full Nigerian, I had a gale wrap, and my brother's wearing, and he's holding like a staff, and we're standing in front of the Olympic flag, and my friends were like, was there a school event? And we're like, no. <laughs> so my mom loved our blackness, but we never had like those substantive conversations about race as we got older as adults and what our reality was like. You know, a lot of parents, it's really hard to imagine that your kid has a whole separate reality from you. You know, they come from you and then you're like, wait, what? You have this whole life I'm not a part of? And that's hard enough anyways. But when you add racial differences then it becomes harder. Like my mom really thought she had earned some real blackness. <laughs> but actually sitting down and realizing I am a white woman. I am not black like my children. And this is where my role is in fighting racial oppression. It gave her focus at when she got past that fear. So now she's, you know, the white lady in her union meeting who's constantly saying, you know, what are your racial initiatives? Because she knows as this little old white lady, she can say that and harp on it over and over again and not be dismissed or insulted the way that black people are. And when you find where you have the power in that situation and then you decide to use it differently, that's where you can make a real difference. I spend a lot of time with allies who don't want to see that we're different. Hmm. And I say it's a lot like when I've lost something in my house and I ask my 10-year-old to help me find it. Yeah, good He luck. just follows me <laughs> everywhere <laughs> and just looks in the exact same place I just looked. And then I keep bumping into him and I'm like, I just did this. He's like, I'm helping. I'm like, you're not helping. Well, the book is amazing. I highly recommend it to everybody. It's So You Want to Talk About Race. It's written by Ijeoma Oluo, our guest. Thanks for coming on Livewire. All right, uh, Ijeoma, here at Livewire, we really like to try to get to know our guests on a very deep, very real level. And so uh, what I have here on stage with me, right in front of you now, is an actual physical jar 
It's got five questions in it. These are the five essential questions of our time. We call this the jar of truth. So here's how this works, if you're up for it. You draw out a question at random from the jar of truth. Our announcer, Elena Passarella, will read the question to you, and then we would like to get your honest uh, answer to one of the five essential questions of our time. All right, let's okay. give it a try. Here we go. So Ijoma is now drawing a question out of the jar of truth, handing it to Elena Passarello. Aren't those people who make you take your shoes off when you come over to their house the absolute worst? <laughs> one of the five essential questions of our time. Are those people the absolute worst? So here's the thing. I always thought so until I got wood floors. <laughs> and then I realized they're not, right? Because if you care about, not even about someone's house, but just about your feet and what you don't want to be stepping in and tracking everywhere, you're going to take those shoes off. But my brother thinks they're the worst. The first time I tried to tell him to take my shoes off, he just stared at me like I had insulted the core of his being. And he said, I don't do that. <laughs> and then he just walked in. I always thought this was a carpet-related decision, right? Like I've, go, I've gone over to friends' houses and they have carpet and it's like, please take the shoes off because the carpet is going to get destroyed. The hardwood floor seems like it would bounce back, but you're saying you don't want to walk in your bare feet in your own home over what my shoes possibly dragged in. Yeah, because carpet kind of absorbs it. Like, do you, have you ever pulled up a carpet? Yes. It's hiding it's, all your secrets. Oh, yeah. You can't unsee the stuff that's in the corners <laughs> under your carpet. Exactly, right? So all of that on a wood floor just chills right on the surface, ready to embed itself on your feet. So everything that you're walking in, that you're stepping in in your shoes, and then you walk around your house, you're just depositing it for later to end up on your sheets when you try to crawl into bed. Uh, Wait a sec. I got you there, right? <laughs> Ijoma Aluo, everybody. Livewire is brought to you by Alaska Airlines, who asks, what comes to mind when you think of Alaska Airlines? Snowdrifts? And husky puppies? Well, how about sunscreen and salsa dancing? Yeah, don't be fooled by the name. Alaska Airlines is a gateway from the West Coast to the world with 1,200 daily flights and over 115 destinations like New York, Honolulu, and Mexico City. So the next time you think Alaska Airlines, think skylines, luau's, and margaritas. Learn more at alaskaairlines.com. This is Livewire from PRI. Luke Burbank here with Elena Passarello and uh, three to 400 beautiful public radio listeners at the Alberta Rose Theater here in Portland. Um, we're, talking, we're talking about getting outside your comfort zone this week on the show. And uh, we, we asked the crowd here to tell us about a time when they got way outside their comfort zone. Uh, Elena, you've been collecting those up. Uh, which ones have, uh, have caught your attention? Oh, here, here's one from Tammy. Asking someone to go on a motorcycle ride. He said, yes. He is sitting next to me tonight. 
He was my divorce lawyer at one time. <laughs> We've been having amazing rides since then. <laughs> so wait a second. So Tammy, this was the divorce attorney. And now you guys are having a... As a man who has been divorced, this is our worst nightmare. <laughs> that our ex-wives' divorce attorneys are giving them great rides. <laughs> uh, any others that don't bring back painful memories for me, Elena? <laughs> uh, there's a lot of love in this room and a lot of nudity. Uh, modeled naked with llamas. That was when somebody here at the theater was outside their comfort zone. They modeled yeah. naked with llamas. That's Meg, to be specific. Meg. Meg modeled naked with llamas. Meg, what made you more nervous, being naked or being near the llama naked? <laughs> what, Meg, Meg what, is in the witness protection <laughs> program. Yeah. Um, here's one from Tom. I somehow acquired free tickets to a Nickelback concert. <laughs> it was a totally different show than I was used to. <laughs> the amount of pyrotechnics was impressive. This is how you remind me that I don't want to go to a Nickelback show. If you got that joke, you've been sneaking some Nickelback. All right. Our next guest is a comedian, actor, and writer, and the host of the incredible improvised podcast, Spontanea Nation. Please welcome Paul F. Tompkins to Livewire. Hello. Hi, everyone. Paul, welcome to Livewire. Luke, thank you for having me once again. Thank you for being here once again. Uh, when's the last time you were in Portland? Was it also to do Livewire? Yes, it was, I think. <laughs> that, could be, that could very well be true. Before, before we became friends. Yes. I mean, both on and off stage. That's Although right. one time I think I did kind of like blow your phone up in Austin. We were both in Austin. Yes. And like, I had met you through the show. Right. And I had gotten your cell phone number. And I showed my friends, look at whose cell phone number I had. And then we were both in Austin, and I decided to try to use the cell phone number. That's right. You picked was, the wrong time. Yeah. I was testing if we were really friends, and I don't think you ever responded. No, I didn't. I was deathly ill. No, really? Yes. I had, a, I had, I landed, it was one of those things where I landed in Austin and got sick immediately. And we were doing, I think we were doing press for a bajillion dollar properties at that time. And so we were... Hey, God bless you. Yeah. That was the nice viewer. To, that was nice to hear that one woo. <laughs> um, and yeah, and we were, so we did a bunch of interviews, and I just kept feeling worse and worse oh. and worse. Yeah. I thought you were just uh, making sure I knew where I ranked in terms of the social order. You were, <laughs> you were just trying to stay alive. Here, <laughs> yes. I was trying, I was clinging to life. The problem with... Um, with texting, with, uh, with Twitter, DMs, all, emails, everything, is that I, what I've learned is you have to respond to things immediately or you will never respond to them ever. And then people will be very mad at you. And so every email I write now begins with, I'm sorry I haven't written back to you yeah. before now. I have noticed that same thing. It's, I, 
I used to, I used to say, like, my email's been being weird, but people have <laughs> caught on to that. <laughs> yeah. My email's been being weird. It's being weird. It's been not responding to these messages autonomously for me. Yeah, I, it's weird. I, I sent a response to you when you wrote that email, <laughs> and then my own email wrote back to me and said, I threw that in the trash. Yeah. I'm weird. Okay, I am such a fan of Spontaneation. Thank you. And Thank you. It is consistently delightful. Thank you. And it impresses me uh, to no end because I personally have an extremely hard time with improv. Not listening to it. I love listening to you do it. Do you ever worry you're not going to have any funny ideas? Every single time. Wow. Seriously? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Which, which to me is the appeal of improv is that you kind of trust that it's all going to be okay. But uh, it's still scary to me after all this time. And um, that's kind of what I love about it. And I, I love the idea of being with other people who also don't know what's going to happen. But everybody's reasonably sure that it's going to turn out okay, which is not guaranteed. You know. Have you had any... Uh, uh, episodes of Spontaneation that when you've finished the bulk of the recording, you said, yeah, no, the magic did not happen. Oh, yes, many times. Um, But what I've learned is that's not up to me because episodes that have gone out that I thought were not great, didn't feel good in the moment, listened back to it, still didn't feel good about it, um, people enjoyed. You know, that's also a a lesson that I learned doing the show is uh, to let things go. I I have this theory that I've subscribed to for a long time that you can think of the worst movie you've ever seen that is guaranteed someone's favorite movie. (laughs) There's someone that loves that movie. And, you know, Amazon reviews will bear that out. Somebody said something to me backstage at this show some number of months ago, I was pacing and nervous, and this person put their hand on my shoulder. They said, the audience also wants this to go well. (laughs) Because I had, in my mind, created this universe where they were, it was like them against me. Sorry, this is the first time I'm telling you this, audience. (laughs) But it's like, no, the audience also wants it to go well. Yeah, that's right. Like, it's a soft landing, as long as you're trying your hardest. (laughs) Yeah. Well, to get people in the door is, you know, 90% of the battle. (laughs) That it's like, okay, people actually did want to show up and see what it is I'm doing. Um, So then uh, you just got to take care of that 10%. I feel like either there were some noises where people thought that was profound or they thought, I can't believe this guy thought that was profound. I'll accept the second reaction, not the first. Uh, Now a sort of a new niche you've carved out for yourself is basically re-recording theme songs for major television and movies. Sure. TV shows and movies that already have theme songs, but you feel that you can punch it up. You can improve it. Well, I'm just saying I think that I've written some good theme songs that TV shows should have gone with. Uh, One of them was uh, actually for the Paul Thomas Anderson film, (laughs) The Phantom Thread. Yes, that's right. So you were driving in your car Mm -hmm. and uh, and, uh, videotaping yourself on your phone. Mm Mm-hmm. And you decided to sing a theme for that movie. That's right. 
And uh, here's, here's what that sounded like. We have it here. Oh, good. The phantom thread, 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 the phantom thread. That's right. By the way, it cuts off like Thank that. You. It wasn't bad editing on our part. Thank you very much. Thank you. I'd like to start by saying none of you will get that out of your head for at least the next four days. I speak from experience. What's so great about the internet, though, and your, your legion of, uh, of fans and admirers is that they are also talented musicians, some of them. That's true. And so somebody uh, uh, took that song that you wrote for Phantom Thread mm -hmm. and then added some ukulele to That's it. That's right. Jim Bogia. The great Jim Bogia. Uh, another a musician from Philadelphia, my hometown. Um, put some, uh, some ukulele. All right, here comes uh, a little bit of that. Here's what that sounded like. Yeah, there's a little breakdown at the end. Yeah. That's beautiful. Yeah, yeah. But then uh, the fun didn't stop there. It sure didn't, Luke. Somebody else saw you in your car with the addition of the ukulele and decided to throw a little theremin in there the on top of the whole. The great Eben Schletter, that's right. Okay, My musical director of many years, Eben Schletter. It's getting very the third man at this point. Yes. Is this what they mean when they talk about the dark web? <laughs> yes. This is the intellectual dark web. <laughs> so then somebody uh, added drums to the whole thing. Tony Thaxton, who was the drummer for uh, Motion City Soundtrack. Can I play one other song that you wrote for a... Uh, oh, for, this I is guess for, so. This is for a television show called Mindhunter. Yes. A really great show about the kind of early profilers in, in the uh, FBI, I believe. Yes, that's right. It's a great show. And, and this is uh, recorded, it would appear, in your, I assume, living room. Yes. The opening credits of Mindhunter are playing, muted on TV, and you're mm. singing this uh, uh, into your phone. Mm. Take a listen to this beauty. Mindhunter. Hunting for some mind, every mind he finds, diseased. A defiler is no smiler if this profiler is near mind hunter. That's, wow, quite beautiful. Thank you. You got some chops. Thank you. Dulcet, dulcet Thank tones. You. Thank you very like, a, much. like a Johnny Holiday kind of thing going on, yeah? 
The Johnny you do, Hooker. If I had a nickel. Yeah. <laughs> You have a you have a beautiful singing voice yeah. as we've heard. Totally. You, have you, have you considered you. professional singing at any point? <laughs> no. Aww. Really? No. I I think I have a good voice for what you expect my voice to sound like. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? But if you if you were to if you were to pay money to go out and see a singing show, <laughs> I think you would leave the venue saying like. Eh, <laughs> I don't want to put you on the spot, noted improviser Paul F. Tompkins, but would you consider writing a Livewire theme song? <laughs> yes, I would consider it. Paul F. Tompkins, everybody. <laughs> Never gets old. Paul F. Tompkins, uh, this is your third appearance on Livewire, and uh, you've always just been such a delight, and uh, you've really hit out of the park in your previous uh, appearances, with one uh, sort of glaring exception, your quiz scores. Uh, each time we've had you on the show, we've given you a quiz. A crooked and, quiz, yes. And you failed sort of miserably. Yeah, because it's a crooked quiz. First time, <laughs> the first time we asked you to differentiate between real Ikea furniture names and real Star Wars character names. Yeah. And you had some trouble with that. And then the second no, time we had you on, yes. uh, we quizzed you on details about the city of Burbank, California, which is near where you live. That's right. And then also details about the life of radio host Luke Burbank, uh, which is me. That's right. And you didn't do well on that either. I thought I did pretty well on that. <laughs> so this time we have come up with a fail-proof quiz, one that we do believe will be right in your comfort zone. All right. It is about famous people who use middle initials. <laughs> okay? okay. That's something that you are familiar with, of course. Paul F. Tompkins, you use <laughs> yes, the I F. Mean, when you put it like that, yes. We call this quiz Initial Impressions. Three, four, Paul to the left of me, Tompkins to the right, here I am, stuck in the middle. Here's how this is going to work. Uh, we're going to give you a famous person and their middle initial, and you need to guess what the middle initial stands for. Michael J. Fox. Jehoshaphat. <laughs> uh, that's what you're going with? Yes. <laughs> Sorry, that's a joke, obviously. It's Your Majesty. <laughs> I believe... Your Majesty is a Jackson, yes, right? Yes, it's Jermaine. I think it's Jermaine Jackson's son. Is that correct, or <laughs> is he here? Yeah. <laughs> I, I could not read that reaction. <laughs> Your, Your Majesty. <laughs> uh, the Michael J. Fox's middle name, are you ready for it, is sure. Andrew. <laughs> True story. Michael Andrew Fox. The J is just for kicks. <laughs> What's the F for in, in Paul F. Tompkins? We've t I feel like we've talked about this before, Luke. It's a, it's a family name, and it's very embarrassing. Fascism. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, things have cycled back into your favor. <laughs> you might want to run with That's that true. for the next 2.4 years. That's true. 
<laughs> All right, here's another one. The H in Jesus H. Christ. <laughs> we thought this would be easy for you, Paul. I'm going to say, hmm, Christopher. <laughs> that one you're absolutely right about. Oh, well, that's there we go. crazy. All right. Okay, so you're coming back. Put it up on the big board. Yeah. <laughs> All right, Paul, mm. what is the E in Chuck E. Cheese's name stand for? Chuck E. Cheese of the Chuck E. Cheese Pizza Empire. Everything I'm going to tell you about this is totally real. We did not make it up. This is real stuff that I'm going to His name is Charles Entertainment Cheese. Uh Aha. What? You're absolutely right? Of course I am. He's a fellow entertainer. Do you know the official, and this is according to the Chuck E. Cheese Company, the official backstory of Charles Entertainer Cheese? Entertainment. The official backstory... Coming from the mean streets of Newark, New Jersey. Charles Entertainment Cheese. You're so... Carved out a life for himself. No, I, Keep going. You're closer than you know. <laughs> he started out in an all-mouse band until several of the members revealed themselves to be rats. <laughs> then he was the first runner-up on the first season of American Idol. <laughs> they reshot the season <laughs> with Justin Guarini replacing him. He then signed a 1,000-year contract (laughs) with a Pizza Time Entertainment Company (laughs) who took him in as one of their own, and he legally changed his name to Charles Entertainment Cheese. That is word for word his backstory. Right? (laughs) Unbelievable. (laughs) You really got most of it. The official... Backstory that this pizza company has written for their mouse mascot yeah. mm-hmm. is that he was an orphaned mouse. He grew up in St. Marinara's Orphanage. <laughs> he does not know his own birthday. To make up for that, he hosts birthday parties for other kids. He moved to New York and started working as a singer in an Italian restaurant where he met and befriended a musical chef named Pasquale. Eventually, Charles and Pasquale moved to California so they could create their own restaurant franchise. Pasquale now serves as his star chef and bandmate. I mean, that all checks out. (laughs) You were pretty close, actually. (laughs) Considering how ridiculous the answers were to these questions, you did better than I expected. Well, I didn't want to mention St. Marinara because I... (laughs) I believe Pope Francis has revoked his sainthood. Yeah. I think we should probably leave things there. Paul F. Tompkins, Spontanea Nation, Bojack Horseman, a million other things. Thank you for being on Livewire. 
We need to take a very quick break. This is Live Wire Radio. We'll be right back. A special thanks this episode of Livewire to Teresa Jones of Bellevue, Washington, and John Hopp of Sacramento, California. Teresa and John are part of the Livewire member community. They have been generously supporting the show with a donation each and every month, and we are so thankful for their support because, no joke, we could not do this show without members like Teresa and John donating to the show. So thank you so much. Thanks for keeping Livewire going. We really appreciate it. Welcome back to Livewire. Luke Burbank here with Elena Passarello. Pitchfork described our musical guest this hour as being armed with a caustic wit and a poetic eye. His latest album, Brick Body Kids Still Daydream, is a concept album about the Chicago housing project where he spent time. Please welcome back to Livewire, Open Mike Eagle. Hi, how are you doing? Doing well. So you lived in uh, Robert Taylor Homes Project in Chicago. Well, my aunt lived in the Robert Taylor Homes. I lived about a mile away from there, but we spent a lot of time with them. Well, when did you get the idea to write this album about that physical place, which has, I guess, been torn down now, right? Right. When the buildings got demolished, I was in college, and um, I never really like gave it the proper like amount of thought or wasn't really engaged in what was going on in Chicago at that time. So I was on a plane maybe about a year and a half ago, and it just occurred to me that I hadn't followed up on what even happened with that land. And then I Googled it on that flight and found out that they hadn't put anything there. So there was just these huge empty lots, and they're still there, these huge, like, just square miles of expanse of emptiness where these giant buildings used to stand. And uh, that made me feel so differently about having spent a lot of time there, about how they were demolished, and looking in, into the facts of how those people were redistributed through the city. Um, and it got me to, to writing. You uh, have been working on a project uh, for Comedy Central with Baron Vaughn, right? Yep, uh, absolutely. What, what's that all about? Well, it is called The New Negroes. Uh, it's a comedy showcase that we do live in LA at um, Upright Citizens Brigade. And it's him and I co-hosting and bringing up different stand-ups. I do music on a live show. On a televised show, it's the same format, uh, except that my musical contribution is in the form of a music video. All right, well, let's hear some of that music now. What, what are you going to perform? A song called 95 Radios. All right, this is Open Mike Eagle on Livewire. Drove all through the neighborhood, sitting in the car all day, trying to find a radio. And we wrapped both hands in tenfold and pointed at the window frame, trying to find a radio. All up in my grandma's basement, sliding all the closet doors, trying to find a radio. And the homies say they heard a rap song, sounded like some folks they know. But we couldn't find a radio Obi, we drinking for a ticket Eat bologna, Sinobi And Big A Live, I play with Kobe The old me, miss my old hoods I miss my homies, it's lonely The radio hosts, it's like they know me The ocean, picked the seashell I saw it floats and was hoping Hear the airwaves, I think it's broken 
Still plague it if the tape resurfaces. Kept the old bone bars for just these purposes. Heard a mix show, had mine on it recently. People had a hard time finding the frequency. Piece of me show feels personal, circle no outsides, but you was car commercials. It's worth it though, whole block listening. Except the kids, they so not interested. Implement new code and tell pro hooks, fit loops, copyrighted by Velcro. Hold sound chains, though nobody wanna sell those. Call the intercom, y'all. This is my Velcro. We drove all through the neighborhood, sitting in the car all day, trying to find a radio. Wrap both hands in ten full and pointed at the window frame. Trying to find a radio. All up in my grandma's basement, sliding all the closet doors. Trying to find a radio. And the homies say they heard a rap song, sounding like some folks they know. But we couldn't find a radio. Yeah. We're at a place that's important, and the name of that city is called Portland. And for some people, that's the origin. It's like in the northwest corridor of Oregon, I think so. And that's the state when I'm rapping, it's not fake, this is a hot take. Yeah, this is all about the neighborhood. We take a sip and they know that the flavor's good. We're in Portland and it amazes me, but all the neighborhoods here look the same to me. But that's just because I live in L.A., I live in LA and that's a state aside, but this looks like another block that might be gentrified. I don't know. I can't tell this what it looks like. Since I was 19, most of the blocks look like dive bars and ice cream places, but that's not here. It's just like everywhere. And there's a little shop that sells custom teddy bears or something like that. It's an artisan. And I'm bipartisan or something. Reach over the aisle to where the hipster's at and make you smile. Yeah, it's all good cause I'm open mic and that's how I'm doing cause I rap, I'm the prototype. They can get love. It's Portland, it's bars or strip clubs everywhere, as far as I can tell. Yeah, you guys don't know anything about that, do you? Get it in for these upstanding citizens, yeah. And we drove all through the neighborhood, sitting in the car all day. Trying to find a radio. Wrap both hands in ten four. Pointing at the window frame. Trying to find a radio. Trying to find a radio. Trying to find a radio. Open Mike Eagle. Right here on Livewire. All right, that's going to do it for our show. A huge thanks to our guests this week for making the show possible. Paul F. Tompkins, Ijeoma Aluo, and Open Mike Eagle. Livewire is brought to you in part by Alaska Airlines Fully and the Jupiter Hotel in Portland. Laura Haddon is our executive producer. Lauren Masterson is our development and marketing director. And Tim Harkins is our operations director. Our editor is Melanie Sevchenko. Caitlin Kunkel is our writer. Our house band is Jonathan Newsom, A. Walker Spring, and Ethan Fox Tucker. Our announcer, of course, is Elena Passarello. Molly Pettit is our technical director. Our house sound is by D. Neil Blake. And our on-air mix is by Corey Schreppel. Thank you so much to Carlson Audio. 
Additional funding provided by the Oregon Arts Commission and the James F. and Marion L. Miller Foundation. Livewire was created by Robin Tenenbaum and Kate Sokoloff. Our show is made possible by the generous support of our members. This week, a big thanks to member Lynn Pham of Beaverton, Oregon for his support. For more information about our show or how you can get our podcast or our newsletter, head on over to livewireradio.org. I'm Luke Burbank. For Elena Passarello, thank you so much for listening, and we will see you next week. PRI Public Radio International. Wouldn't it be amazing to have a piping hot episode of Livewire delivered right to your heart and ears each week? Well, guess what? That can happen when you subscribe to the Livewire podcast feed and you'll get the joy of surprising conversation every week. So go ahead and do it. It's super easy. You click on the button at the top of your podcast app and bam, you are Livewire subscribed. And if you're still, you know, feeling the love, if you're enjoying the show, hey, maybe you could hook us up and uh, leave us a quick review. That'll help more people find out about Livewire. And thank you.